This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. Today we're going to be talking about one of the agencies that helps combat the explosive situation with wildfires, primarily in the western United States. But first, a word from our sponsor. At MSA, your health and safety drives us to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. It's designed to meet the challenges you face every day to help keep you safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com globe. That's msafire.com globe. Today, we're speaking with Jessica Cardetto. Jessica has been the National Interagency Fire Center Public Affairs Chief since 2019. She joined the Bureau of Land Management as a wildland firefighter, uh, frankly, to pay for college in 1996, and continued with the Bureau of Land Management after graduation. After six years working on the fire line, Jessica moved to public affairs and has been working for the Bureau of Land Management's Communications Division ever since. Jessica, I want to thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the show uh, to talk about the National Interagency Fire Center, or NIFSI, as you will hear us use. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Before we dive into the fire season predictions and realities, um, let's talk about NIFSI. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the history of the center and and its mission? I think a lot of folks have heard of other agencies, but they might not have heard about NIFSI. So the National Interagency Fire Center started in the 1960s when the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service started talking about how wildfires know no boundaries, and it really just made sense for wildland fire agencies to be co-located and work closely together, knowing that wildfires often burn federal, county, city, and private lands all within one incident. So they started the National Interagency Fire Center and based it in Boise, Idaho, because most large wildfire activity occurs in the West. And Boise was just strategically located to provide a national office that could easily access most of the Western states and easily coordinate fire suppression and fire management efforts throughout the country. And After they created the center in the 1960s, it was like officially dedicated in 1970s. So NIFC has been around for more than 50 years now. And in that 50 years, wildland fire management has changed quite a bit. More agencies joined over the years. So now there are nine agencies represented at NIFC. And as you well know, wildland fire management has just become increasingly complex, especially in recent years. We're seeing larger wildfires. We're seeing them occur earlier in the spring, last later into the fall, and they're just larger, they're more complex, and they're often more difficult to control. This year and last year have been examples of this increasingly complex fire environment that we're dealing with these days. Last year, we broke a record. We burned more than 10 million acres throughout the country. And this year, we've been at preparedness level five since mid-June, and it's looking like that's not going to change. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned some of the history there that um, uh, makes me think back to the the whole um, 
ICS and, and NIMS development and whatnot. Um, has 9-11 and, and with the development of NIMS, has that had an impact on the coordination between the agencies, hopefully a positive impact, uh, or, or is pretty much FireScope as it once was in California and, and the whole uh, ICS piece there, is it pretty much been business as usual or has the NIMS doctrine helped all these agencies uh, pull together with the local authorities? So it has um, affected wildland fire management, but it's always been incorporated in the incident command system. And that's something that, you know, NIFSI also does well is we coordinate with city and county fire personnel. And we have a lot of city and county fire personnel on wildland fire incident management teams that mm -hmm. deploy to manage these large fires throughout the country. Sure. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about the NIFSI campuses. Uh, you're out near Boise, Idaho, right? And um, I'd like you to give our listeners a glimpse of, of what really goes on there. So the NIFSI campus is about 55 acres, and there are, as I mentioned, nine federal agencies located here at the center, and they all work very closely together. When we're experiencing fire activity, we have what we call um, the National Multi-Agency Coordinating Group, and that's a group of fire operations personnel from all of the agencies, and they meet daily, especially when we're at preparedness level five, which is the highest level of, of wildfire preparedness. It's it's numbered from one to five, one being the lowest, five being the highest, and that means we're seeing a lot of large wildfires throughout the country. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a competition for resources, and we're seeing a lot of large wildfires across the landscape. So that um, NMAC group, as we call it, meets daily to prioritize the geographic areas and determine essentially which which areas and which fires are going to receive resources. Because when we are at preparedness level five, as I mentioned, there's competition for resources. Um, there are a finite number of firefighters and firefighting resources. And that's something that we do here at NIFSI is, is work to allocate those resources throughout the country and make sure that they're going where they need to go. The NIFSI campus also involves, you know, less exciting things, but really crucial things like human resources. You know, we have to have a human resources department that is specific to wildland fire and wildland firefighting qualifications because they're so different than other federal and state land management agency positions. They, they just have their own sets of requirements and the positions and, and applying for jobs is just a different role. So. Right. We also have other support functions like um, the Great Basin Wildland Fire Cache is located here. It's one of 16 caches throughout the country. And these large caches, as I often joke, are like uh, Costco for fire. They provide all of the supplies that you might need for a large incident. So it's everything from tools to toilet paper to coffee kits to tents and sleeping bags and um, what we call pumpkins, those large tanks that they set up for helicopters to dip out of during large incidents. We also have a returns warehouse. So a lot of people don't know that all the equipment that goes out on these fires, we refurbish and reset everything that could possibly be refurbished and get it ready for the next year. So we have a warehouse that does that too. And just an example, a couple years ago, um, they distributed about $52 million of equipment and they were able to refurb and reset and resupply about 50 million of that equipment. So we really do, um, we're able to actually 
ensure that the taxpayers are getting their bang for their buck, essentially, and ensuring that we reuse um, most of the materials that we use to supply fires. There are also a lot of other, um, the Weather Service is also located here at NIFC because fire is, um, and the weather are very closely tied. So the weather has a very, you know, intense effect on wildfire behavior. So the Weather Service is located here and we work very closely with them. Our Predictive Services Group, is located here and they are constantly looking at the weather, they're looking at drought, they're looking at all the factors that could potentially affect wildfire behavior and ensuring that fire managers know what's coming, what may happen next week, what might happen in a couple of hours. And um, they ensure that, you know, not only are the fire managers here briefed, but that information goes out to fire managers throughout the country as well. Yeah, so a big piece of logistics and planning is really what it sounds like Nipsey is is doing for us right there. Yes, it's a lot of logistics and and planning and support efforts. I think a lot of people when they picture the National Emergency Fire Center, you know, they picture air tankers and firefighters coming in and out. And while that does happen here, a lot of what we do is support because you need that support nucleus in order to ensure that firefighters and fire managers on the ground are getting what they need. Okay, good stuff. So, you know, as I mentioned before, many of our listeners have likely um, uh, not heard as much about NIFSI as, say, the National uh, Wildfire Coordinating Group. So the NWCG, a lot of folks, at least at the operations level, a lot of folks know that. What's the relationship with the NWCG? I'm glad you asked about NWCG because I forgot to cover them. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so the National Wildfire Coordinating Group is also based here in NIFC. And that okay. is a whole uh, different silo of wildland fire management because, as I mentioned, wildland firefighters have a very specific set of qualifications and training, and it's consistent. You know, same with, with city and municipal fire personnel. You're always training and you're always learning. And so the National Wildfire Coordinating Group, they work to ensure that training is current, that training is distributed, and that training is accessible to all wildland firefighters. They also ensure national standards so that we have consistent standards for all the different federal agencies, federal, state, really any agency that deals with wildland fire, so that you know, when you have, say, a firefighter who's taking training in Idaho, that firefighter is taking that could be taking the same training in Florida. So essentially, it's ensuring training and consistency throughout the country for all wildland fire management. Yeah, no, good. So, you know, I've read some about NIFSI, um, and clearly you support more than wildfire operations. Can you share a bit of the other types of uh, responses that NIFSI deals with or, or assists with, if you will? I'm glad you asked. So, yes, NIFSI does not just support wildland fire management. We really try to support all natural disasters or any sort of large event that requires support and logistics. So we did assist with 9-11. We assist with hurricane response. And really, yeah, as I said, anything that might require logistics and support because firefighters and fire wildland firefighters and wildland fire personnel are very good at ensuring that we have logistics and the right support for any incident, really. Yeah. And I suspect that, you know, there used to be a season for you. 
that uh, you pretty much weren't going to, I'm, I'm guessing you pretty much weren't going to be able to help out with other events during the main fire season. But it seems like, you know, everybody has said this, that the season is now almost become a year round thing. So I suspect that that um, has indeed limited NIFC's ability to get out to these other events. I mean, have, have you seen that had an, uh, an impact on your ability to assist with other things? So far, it hasn't really, you know, 100% affected it, but it has to a certain degree. So as you mentioned, yeah, we're seeing fire activity year round. That's why we're using the term fire year now versus fire season. So yeah, we are seeing an overlap of fire activity and say hurricanes in the fall. So we have experienced some instances where we had to say, unfortunately, we can't support or provide as much support for an event like a hurricane when we still have a lot of large wildfires burning across the landscape. So far, we've been pretty fortunate in that we haven't had the two of those natural disasters really coincide at the same time, like, you know, several hurricanes occurring while we have a lot of large wildfire activity. But the also thing that, or excuse me, the other thing that really happens when you have now, you know, wildfires lasting longer into the year is fire personnel. There's potential for burnout because these people start working hard in the spring yep. and away from their families for, you know, six months at a time and then asking them to go out and respond to hurricanes and other national disasters is um, tricky because yeah. you know, a lot of these people are, you know, by the time they're finished in the fall with fire activity, they want to break. They want to be home with their families. They want to have, you know, work eight to five and have their weekends off. Can't blame them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, people trained and certified people are not an endless resource. So um, that's an important note. So for the for the average fire chief out there, um, how can or does NIFSI help that average fire department that uh, might need some help? You know, how do they help? And then how does the fire department get a hold of the folks at NIFSI? So how how does, you know, NIFSI help? So we, when I mean we, I guess, you know, the federal fire management agencies work closely with local and municipal fire departments for fire suppression. And so, for example, I'll just use um, the Boise Bureau of Land Management. There's um, the BLM is divided by district and uh, the Boise district is here just across the street, actually, from NIFSI. And their wildland fire personnel coordinate very closely with Boise City Fire Department. And they not only work to train for potential fire incidents, because we have a lot of wildland urban interface here in the Boise foothills. There are a lot of homes that are mixed with wildlands that when you do have a wildland fire incident, it's there's potential for a lot of homes to burn. So mm-hmm. they regularly coordinate and train with Boise City, but they also work together on things like grants on how to obtain grants for things like um, wildfire risk reduction around communities and fuels treatments <clears throat> and other sort of um, other sorts of grants and community preparedness efforts. We also work together with the city for training. And the other thing that we really value and hope that we can continue is working with city fire personnel to ensure that they obtain wildland fire qualifications and are part of these incident management teams. I know a lot of um, city firefighters who are amazing on these incident management teams. And, you know, of course, they're they're firefighters and 
So they have that really intelligent logistical brain and they just mix really well with wildland fire personnel and they're so valuable on these teams. So we hope that we can coordinate even more and work further with a lot of city fire department personnel to, you know, of course, there's all sorts of, of wildland fire qualifications, but what we're seeing now is a lot of these upper, you know, management positions, it takes a long time to get to become, say, an incident commander on a wildland fire type two or um, type one incident command team. Sure. And, you know, as these people are retiring, you know, we're we're worried about potential for some of these positions being vacant and a lot of that training and knowledge leaving with a lot of these really experienced fire personnel. So city fire personnel serve um, are just a huge role in that. And we just hope we can continue that coordination with them. So it's great information. I heard you talk about Boise there. How about the other fire departments um, across the country or, you know, that have the similar situations or or similar uh, fire problems? Um, Can you provide assistance to them? Yes. So that is something that we do nationally. And I would recommend, you know, for city fire personnel, to Google your nearest land management agency. So that would either be the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Park Service. Those are kind of the top four. Um, Bureau of Indian Affairs is another federal agency. To find out the nearest office where, you know, closest to your city where you work and call, contact them to see if they can offer training to see where you could fit in as as far as, you know, starting a task book and starting training if you were interested in obtaining wildland fire qualifications. And then also to find out about um, preparing for wildland urban interface fires to ensure that city fire, fire personnel are working closely with federal fire personnel, because as we're seeing too, we're seeing fires expand into areas that we previously didn't really experience a lot of wildfire activity. I know, for example, Florida um, has had some pretty extreme fire activity in the past. And as we know, that's something that often repeats itself. And there are a lot of cities throughout the country that have these wildland urban interface areas. And because we're now experiencing drought and less precipitation in the winter, a lot of these cities that previously didn't have a lot of wildland urban interface fire danger could potentially have more of it. So that would be my uh, suggestion is to coordinate with your local land management agency, um, not only to see if you you could get qualifications to become um, a member of an incident management team, but also to find out about training and grants and coordinating closely with federal agencies to work on community wildfire risk reduction. Okay, good stuff. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop advanced safety equipment and performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as athletic gear for firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your turnout gear. Get the full story at msafire.com slash globe. That's msafire.com slash globe. 
Okay, Jessica, talking about uh, today now. So as of uh, right now, there are fires continuing to explode in California and Oregon and other areas of the West. Uh, by the time this podcast airs, certainly there will be new information and, and new fires. But let's talk about the current situation. What are you seeing and, and how's that aligning with or uh, or different from previous years? So we started experiencing wildfire activity a little earlier this year in that we're seeing wildfires become large and difficult to control rather quickly and earlier in the year. Arizona and New Mexico started early this spring with a lot of large wildfire activity. And thankfully, those two two states are experiencing monsoonal moisture. So their quote unquote fire season has dwindled, which is great because a lot of those resources can leave those states and go help with large wildfires throughout the rest of the country because we are experiencing a lot of large wildfires throughout the rest of the West. The Northwest is experiencing large fires. They've got about... eh, more than 20 large uncontained incidents occurring just in the Northwest right now. There's more than 113 large wildfires burning throughout the country. Wow. And these large wildfires, you know, large wildfire, first I should start with, anything larger than 100 acres in a timber ecosystem is considered a large wildfire. And anything yeah. larger than 300 acres in a rangeland or grass ecosystem is considered a large wildfire. Mm. So, that's just, you know, uh, there's more than 113 large fires, wildfires burning throughout the country, but we do have a lot of other wildfires that are smaller than that that are also burning right now. Sure. And we don't expect the situation to subside. We are predicting continued hot and dry weather that a lot of predictive services specialists are saying will continue into October. So, yeah. Because we've yet yeah, been experiencing drought, and some areas of the country have been experiencing drought for several years now, California being one state where they just, everything there is so dry. So out of all of those fires that you just mentioned, uh, are, are there any that your team is particularly concerned about blowing up and you know becoming something significantly worse? So that's actually a good question because it's pretty much all of them. Oh, <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. yeah, that we're concerned about, you know, not all of them are threatening lives, homes, communities, which of course those fires receive priority and, you know, receive the most resources when they're requesting right. them. Right. But fires like the bootleg, there are a lot of fires in the Northwest that are burning in really thick timber ecosystems and because we've been experiencing drought in some of these areas, those fires are, they're just difficult to control. And, you know, a lot of them could potentially burn until October or until they get some consi- consistent precipitation and cooler temperatures. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's there's really no denying that um, the fire situation has gotten progressively worse over the past decade. So I guess it's predictive what you just said, that we expect all of them um, to, to potentially blow up. And, and hopefully by the time this airs, you know, that will we will have been proven wrong. But um, I get it. So no denying it's gotten worse over over the last decade or maybe a little more. You care to weigh in on uh, what that's attributable to? Sure. So. We have definitely seen 
as I was mentioning, you know, longer fire years where we're seeing fire activity earlier in the spring, last later into the fall. And in some states like California, you know, they're experiencing large wildfire activity into December and, and year round, essentially. So we're attributing a lot of that to the climate for whatever reason is, you know, potentially changing because we're seeing increased temperatures that occur earlier in the spring and they last later into the fall. We're seeing less precipitation. Precipitation is really critical, especially snowpack because snowpack can have a great effect on what the following fire, uh, excuse me, the following year's fire activity will be like. So a lot of areas this past winter didn't get adequate snowpack, or if they did, that snowpack didn't make up for previous year's um, drought. So we're seeing this combination of less precipitation, hotter and drier weather, and then when we get dry lightning storms coupled with those factors, that usually means an above normal fire year. And yeah. that's what we've been seeing in recent years. However, this all being said, it's, it's really kind of difficult to compare the statistics because really we've only been tracking with current technology and mapping capabilities and satellites and, you know, GIS systems since about the 1980s. And so before the 1980s, we don't have a lot of solid data as far as how fire gears were, you know, what large wildfires were like and, and how long they burned. So, we can say, yes, we've seen an increase in fire activity, you know, in the last 40 to 50 years, but comparing that increase to previous years is kind of difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I think, and, and this is what I likened a lot of our bigger fire incidents to folks, the advent of social media um, and the widespread internet, as opposed to just 20 years ago, um you know, how widely now uh, th that that gap of what it was like then and what it's like now for us to be able to get reliable information i suspect social media has a lot to do with us being more aware uh, because instantly these things are in front of us on facebook or twitter or you know linkedin or whatever and um I, you know i suspect while uh, climate change is indeed um, a big piece of this. I also suspect that social media is a, a, a part of why we're hearing more about it. And maybe it's not any worse than it ever has been. It's just they're just getting a little bigger, I'd say. And moving that on, what do you say to the people who scoff at climate change or uh, talk about how this has happened for centuries? You know, how, how do we address that professionally and, um, you know, keep keep the discussion of prevention and preparedness going? So I would say in a lot of cases, the science is still out. I mean, we know that, yes, over the last, you know, since, as I mentioned, we've had really reliable data over the last 40 to 50 years, we've seen an increase in fire activity where we're seeing larger fires. They're larger, they're difficult to control. They last longer into the fall or start earlier in the spring. But again, yeah, I mean, how, how do we compare that to previous years? difficult to do. The other factor involved there is there are more people living in the wildland urban interface. In states yep. like Idaho, where we are, we've seen a vast expansion of homes being built in these wildland urban interface areas. So that's the other factor there is there are more people and more people equals more fires. Um, depending on the year, 
about 85% of all fires nationally are caused by people. So <laughs> that's another factor is humans. Um, you know, we, we, have, we know that, say, in 1910, millions of acres burned in Idaho. We know that humans are now more of an influence than they were back then. So, yeah, as far as, you know, when you're talking about climate change related to fire, the science is really still out. I mean, all we really know is that, yes, in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, we've seen an increase in fire activity. But comparing that to previous years, kind of a challenge. We do know, too, that the wildland urban interface is becoming increasingly complex, and we don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we know it's been a, a tough fire season already, and um, you know our listeners are inundated with the information on uh, Facebook or the media, whatever. Uh, but I think it's really important that that they have some takeaways from this, and I'd like for you to share what you believe is ahead. Uh, for this year? So what we think is ahead is likely fire activity lasting into the fall. And predictive services personnel are hoping, fingers crossed, that we have more precipitation this fall and this winter. Fingers crossed we have a year where we see more rain and we see more snow occur throughout the winter months. But at this point, we're not confident that we're going to get what we call season ending weather events anytime soon. So in some of these areas, we could experience fire activity into November if, you know, we don't see those cooler temperatures and precipitation. One thing too, that we would love the public and, and other people to remember is again, most wildfires are caused by people. And surprisingly enough, wildfires aren't really caused by people doing things like flicking cigarettes out or campfires. You know, they are caused by those things. Mm -hmm. But the majority of fires are caused by things like people towing a trailer and that trailer's dragging a chain and that chain throws sparks for miles along the side of a road. And then we end up with numerous fires started. Yep. So that's the other thing, I guess, that, you know, we, we hope that people remember is it's really important to research before you do things like go on a vacation or a road trip or take your ATV out on public lands to ensure that you're not doing something that could start a fire. Because a lot of fires, again, are started by, by people doing things that they just don't realize are going to start an incident. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. You said that, that um, the chains I've physically watched that occur uh, in our local area in Florida. And like you said, the people just, have no idea, um, and we had to we had to physically stop that get that person stopped by law enforcement uh, because they weren't paying attention to anybody else to be able to pick up that chain. And in the meantime, we had fire units dealing with six different fires that had started along the road. Fortunately, they were able to wrap their hands around it. They were just grass and field fires. Um, and and then the other phenomenon that a lot of folks don't think about is the trains. Uh, as the railroads come through and the sparks that come off of uh, either through bad breaks or through uh, just burrs in the system that start a lot of these fires. And of course, those are then in remote places that it could burn for days before somebody actually finds out about it. So uh, anything else to add, Jessica, to our discussion today? Um, gosh, I, I think you've actually asked some really great questions. I, I can't think of anything else to add at this point other than um, one more, I guess, you know, plug for people who do live in wildland urban interface areas, 
if your home is in an area that could be at risk from wildfire, it is never too late to do simple things like improve your landscaping around your home that greatly reduce, reduce the odds that your home will burn in a, in a wildfire event. And it's super easy to just Google um, FireWise. And the NFPA has a great FireWise website with a lot of really simple tools that people can use to just do simple, low-cost things like landscaping to greatly reduce the risk that their home could burn in a fire. Yeah, creating those defensible spaces around structures is critical to protection, especially in that wildland urban interface. It's just uh, a lot of folks want to have the trees and they want to have the vegetation. Uh, and, you know, ultimately you've got to ask yourself what's more important. So I appreciate you being with us today. It's all we have time for. We've been talking with Jessica Cardetto, Chief of External Affairs for the National Interagency Fire Center. Thanks for joining us, Jessica, and thanks to our listeners for hanging in. This is Mark Bashore, Executive Editor for FireRescue1.com. Have a great day on purpose. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care.